Hi, this is Jackie Fry, Design Ops Leader and Part-Time Sociologist. And this is Allison Rand, Design Ops Leader and Cognitive Neuroscientist in Training. And you are listening to In Common. Woo! So have you set your Q2 goals yet? <laughs> my personal Q2 goals or like my professional Q2 goals? Because I know you have several levels of goals that you were working with. You're, Allison, I, don't, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you. So you're <laughs> one individual. So they're the same. They're like in, in and of the same. Oh, no. One Jack- authentic. Jackie. Now stop. You're not... Are you not there yet? <laughs> I feel first, like everybody first of all, on this- I have seen your personal, personal goals. So, okay, let's talk about stress behavior. <laughs> I am like totally will admit that my stress behavior and the way I cope is to basically find um, sense or control over what I have actually control over, right? So I'm like, in times of stress, I will immediately kind of like take a look around. My fight or flight is like, what what is in my actual control right now? And like, if nothing is in my control, like I, I, how do you accept that? Or if what is in my control and how can I deliver on what is and, and move that like to, so anyways, we're in this incredibly stressful time and I feel like everything on the social media is just my connection to the outside world right now. (laughs) It's like, Hey, if you have some time, you should read some like books or, Oh my gosh. And then some people are like, yeah, but like, no, that's not where we're at. So like, are you, are you in like goal setting Q2 goal setting mindset growth? ambition like let's get this let's use this time wisely or like are you in the like no honey where are you at um I feel like I vacillate I'm always in that freaking goal setting growth mindset place in a certain way but I'm finding myself vacillating almost on a daily basis between being like a slug I can't even believe this is where we are right now and Um, how much food do I have in my pantry to like, oh, when we get out of this and I'm going to do this and I'm like, everybody, come on, chop, chop, chop. We got to start setting our goals. But it's hard. It's hard because like you just keep going back. And like I said, I keep going back and forth between feeling like, what's the point? You know, obviously we need to be hyper present present right now to, well, we're going to get through this. And when we do, I want to make sure that I'm set up in the right way. I have done my Q2 goals. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you have. (laughs) But like, I I do have, like for for anyone who is stuck in between those two states, maybe like you're in like this work scenario where they're like, commit to your Q2 goals or your upcoming quarter goals or like, hey, you know, encouraging growth sort of mindset right now, but maybe like my sort of have to participate it, but just can't click into it. The, the one thing that I, I try to do to kind of catch my bias is really help to like, when we do have these like global, you know, type programs that in, in our companies or like whatever, uh, where you have to set goals um, and sort of, sort of a requisite of your job that you, you just, I like to say under commit over deliver. Mm. And then like what, and, and really only commit mm. to the things you know 
that you can deliver on. So if it like, if you have to evaluate a goal, everyone's like smart goals or this type of goals, like, yes, be specific, be like, like it's measurable, it's specific. It's, you know, like all those things are great when you set a goal, but like one thing I've noticed is like how much of your goal is uh, impacted by things you don't control. And like, that might not be a good goal to commit right now. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like really evaluate these things. And then obviously talk with like, you know, if it isn't a work scenario, professional scenario with your manager, with your peers to help inform them. But like, I, I, I've done it, but it is definitely like things that I'm like, I can win an Olympic medal at that. You know, it's like, I know I can deliver. And that takes like a lot. It's like a, thought process for sure. I think, yeah. And it depends on how good you are at compartmentalizing. And yeah. also my I, other stress behavior. My other stress <laughs> oh, behavior. 100% <laughs> mine too. I am excellent at compartmentalizing. Just keep going. Like just, we will oh. yeah, just keep going, put that in a box, close the box, put it in the, under the bed and never talk about it ever again. Like that's <laughs> totally my stress behavior. <laughs> But the thing I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of as we're in week three, essentially, or four, I don't even know anymore, of the situation. Um, and there is this expectation that it's a new normal and everybody, it's business as usual. I think more than ever, we're going to, we're obviously seeing the blend of the personal professional world. Mm-hmm. However, I also think that over time, we're going to start to see more fracturing if organizations and leaders in those organizations are not acknowledging loss of productivity Mm. based Mm. on the reality that we are surrounded by right now and so Mm. it's Mm. like very very real and there are you know i'm sure there's plenty of people who are just like just forge ahead just forge ahead we just have to keep moving obviously the world can't stop but also obviously um obviously we are where we are. So, so I think we have to find a hybrid place as well. We have oh a guest God. this week. I know. We this is, guest this I'm so excited. Yes. So we're super excited. We're talking to Alexis Lloyd today. And uh, you ready to do this? Let's do it. Let's do it. Alexis Lloyd. Oh my God. I am I'm a huge fan. Oh my gosh. You should be because she is one of the best things to happen to ladies ever. Yes, I agree. <laughs> ladies in design ladies, and ladies everywhere. Ladies everywhere. There's like Oprah, Beyonce. And oh, Alexis Lloyd. That is, we are such fans of you. Just so you know. <laughs> so first of all, Alexis, welcome. You are our first guest on the In Common inaugural season. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us and, uh, and <laughs> being open to this experiment with us. Also, Alexis is my like <laughs> diehard homie because she also grew up in New York City, which are few and far between. And so we were, you know, it was basically like love at first sight. Um, and she's this brilliant woman who is now, Alexis, tell us where you're, what, what you're doing, what you're up to now. So right now I am VP of product design at Medium. So I head up the product design team there. And I also uh, co-founded um, the Ethical Futures Lab with my partner, Matt Bhaji. 
And we're spinning that up and trying to see where that goes. Yes, this Ethical Futures Lab, the newsletter, sign up for it. It is fantastic. I'm going to do, um, it. I'm gonna do it right now. Do it right now. Well, okay. Don't multitask, Jackie. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, so Alexis, tell us, where, where, you, where are you right now? Where you're at? How are you feeling? It's all very weird right now. I mean, that's like, I think unsurprising to say we're all feeling it. It's all very weird. Mm-hmm. I was actually going back today and rereading um, this essay that I read a couple times a year um, by Nick Foster called The Future Mundane. Mm. And I love it because it's like, as, as someone who thinks a lot about, you know, um, kind of design futures and how we design for where we're going next and how we imagine where we might be going. Um, there's a lot of what, what I'd call like shiny corporate futures where like everyone is upper middle class and everybody has the same like brand of things that all seamlessly work together or like alternately these like dystopias where like everything is broken and horrible and nightmarish. And I think the, the present moment reminded me of this like future mundane thing because it's all about how like all of these things exist together that like the future is accretive and it's partly broken and it's all of it. It's not just the main characters, but it's also the bit players and it's like um, very different from how we tell these narratives in our heads. And so I'm feeling this so much right now because it's like, I'm going about my day and I'm going to meetings and I'm taking care of my kids and I'm like cooking dinner. And then also the world is kind of exploding. And it's weird to hold these two realities in your head at the same time. Yeah. Although I'd love to just dig on that a little bit and say like, you know, I think you're saying two things, right, Alexis? It's either the future is broken or it is like this shiny weird like just yeah well we tend to have we tend to have these very um unnuanced conversations about the future about how to do things right or wrong that it's all very very black and white and so when we talk about futures they tend to be like utopian or dystopian when we talk about like design ethics then it tends to be you're either doing something wonderful or horrible and there's not a lot of play in the gray areas that are what actual reality looks like. Um, and so I think that's, that's the thing that I'm getting to is that like, even when things are horrible, there's also like in the current moment, there's also things that are normal and like th- that it's weird to have those juxtapositions, but those juxtapositions are real. Yeah, things will never be the same. However, we're all just like, okay, well, we're just gonna show up and everybody just pretend that like we're doing our jobs and like, you know, making stuff and it's all good. Kids, here's the freaking iPad. I hope you're okay. See you in four hours. (laughs) But like, um, it's hard to live in that middle place, which I guess is just the way I wonder if that's really just the way things have always been. We've just kind of reached this crazy tipping point in a certain way. Well, and I think that's like one of the things that's happening right now is that, I mean, obviously there, there is something very specific that is happening now that wasn't happening several months ago, mm-hmm. um, i.e. coronavirus. But I think that the, the knock-on effects of that are that it is 
revealing a lot of existing fissures and a lot of existing interconnected tissue that we could get away with having it be largely invisible before. Um, that there, there weren't, there wasn't pressure put on those cracks and the, you know, the things that could previously be made invisible are now very, very visible. And I think that's one of the things that um, I'm hoping is a silver lining in all of this is that mm -hmm. we start to really like understand the way in which we exist as part of um, social fabrics, as part of economic fabrics, as part of infrastructural fabrics, and that we can't actually just think of ourselves as these like isolated individuals having free will off on our own, not operating within these systems. Completely. I love a question there. I mm -hmm. absolutely love it. I think you were talking about the fissures that were, the cracks were there, right? This shift of individualism, you know, we, it's sort of intergenerational, right? It's sort of this moment that, again, the historian sociologist in me wants to like look like what, what was this shift to individualism? Uh, that happened and we quickly, you could look at the 1980s, right? But that was all a, a, an outcome of the baby boom, uh, baby, boomer, baby boomer generation, right? And, and all of this, so there's already these shifts in society, right? That we were super individually focused. You just, mm -hmm. you were just talking about it. What is it shifting? Where are we going? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting because it comes at a time where I think some of these, um, some of these shifts were happening already and I think they're being radically accelerated. I mean, I think you can see in the ways in which um, capitalism has become a visible thing that we have started to talk about. It's not just the default, like that people are talking about socialism and they're talking about capitalism. They're talking about like, what are the underlying um, sort of incentives and structures that guide how we do everything. Um, and I think that in, in uh, technology and design, you've seen that a lot as well, where we started to feel this like real kind of discomfort about um, some of the underlying uh, economic power dynamics <laughs> implicit in a lot of the systems that we're, we're building and designing. I feel like these are things that have been growing pretty palpably over the past couple of years. Um, and then I think that an event like this really does put this pressure on where we have to understand our, ourselves as um, a communal society that we are dependent on each other in really, really, in really real ways. If you could see my face right now, I'm just smiling ear to ear. I'm so glad <laughs> we talked about interconnectedness. Like, oh my, interdependencies. Oh my, I'm just going to take a moment and just revel in that. I, I, I hand the mic over to Alan. <laughs> well, Jackie and I, a big part of why we even wanted to has, why we started this podcast was because a we wanted to have a bit of self-awareness for design because it is like such an insular um, exclusive community that kind of has the same conversations over and over again and in a lot of ways no, that um, <laughs> with each other in the same room <laughs> <laughs> on, on Twitter, <laughs> uh, but Jackie loves to call um, what uh, you know uh, what. Well, some of these conversations that we want to have with people like you, like bringing in like more consciousness, like this consciousness rising. Um, and I know, and I so I I love I feel like um, 
in some ways you are, you know, the, the ethical futures lab, you and, and Matt have been, have been um, thinking about, talking about and writing about so many of these things before this even happened. I, I feel like in some ways you saw this coming, right? I mean, even way back when, when you were um, in the R&D lab at the New York Times, I think, like, do you see this connection? You must see a connection between the work that you were, you've been doing all along to this point right now and the work that you, even the work that you're trying, that you are doing in the, the Ethical Futures Lab. For sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, so Matt and I met at the R&D Lab at the Times and, and a lot of the work that we were doing there was really about exploring the realm of the newly possible. So looking at emerging technologies, emerging behaviors and understanding what was now possible and what could be made in those spaces to look forward and understand what that meant for uh, news, media, um, and sort of the internet at large, like three to five years out. And so a lot of that, you know, started from a place of like, what can we do, but quickly evolved into this place of what should we do? So really understanding, you know, when you look at, um, when you try to do any kind of forecasting about what new possibilities will emerge, you have to look at these kind of, um, not just the immediate possibility, but also like the second and third order effects and try and understand what might happen from there. And that's when you start to really understand this idea of like, these are all interconnected systems. They all have these unintended consequences, these second order effects that we have to pay attention to. Mm. Um, otherwise we end up making a lot of uh, blind choices um, or implicit choices. Mm. And a lot of the work that we've been doing all along is really about trying to understand um, what those implicit choices are, what the effects they have are, how the um, kinds of things that we design and make as designers and technologists play into these larger systems and to talk really openly about how we make things that work as best as possible for as many people as possible. I, I love this. And you have just posted this incredible um, read on Medium, Design for Systems, Not Users, which speaks Woo! directly to that. Um, aside from the obvious, you know, um, how, did you, how did you get to this? How did you get to this place? I mean, you've been thinking about this for a long time, right? But there's there's this, there's this quote in there that I just love. It says, if this starts to feel very big, it's because it is. Woo! Everything we make has knock-on effects beyond the choices we explicitly make. So a system-centered design or society-centered design practice tries to make the larger system visible. Can you yes. just unpack this? It's, oh my gosh. It's, Chaos theory <laughs> written in totally understandable words. I love it. I, uh -huh. love it. I know. Well, that's like a, Alexis is just... So, so succinct this is, and perfection. This is, this is, it. that's like my, that sentence is my new jam. So yes, <laughs> Alexis, please. Make a new t-shirt, Alexis. Make another t-shirt. <laughs> there are lots of t-shirts coming. <laughs> yes, we're going to have to do in the new economy anyway. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, let's Tell us. This. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, um, I've been having this niggling feeling for a while. I mean, I've been writing and talking and thinking pretty explicitly about these kind of thinking about 
designed from a more systems thinking perspective about how do we, uh, I like the way um, I quote Kevin Slavin a bunch in this uh, medium mm -hmm. piece I wrote because he wrote a great essay that I often look at called Designing for Participation. And it's really this idea that like we're, as designers, we're participating in these larger systems where, you know, um, we're nudging them, we're influencing them, but that they are very big. They're, they're more complex than we can probably deterministically define as designers. And I think that's a really uncomfortable place for a lot of designers. But like, even though I've been thinking in this systems way for a long time, it's like only recently that I started to put that together with like, what might be problematic about the user centered design practices that I think we've all kind of grown up with professionally. Yes. We've sort of been trained in these ideas that user centered design is like, is ethical, it's humane, it's like rooted in empathy for people and therefore it, it helps us create good experiences that put those people first and therefore it's good for society. But there's this gap between like the individual and society because like we're designing for, for individuals, we're designing often for like consumers, the, the people who have the purchasing power in mm -hmm. the arrangement um, and the people who are like directly engaging with the software and we're not really thinking about these bigger interconnected systems that are composed of lots of different participants. There are these kind of invisible systems and implicit choices that are made when we just talk about user-centered design mm. that I think are, can lead us and have led us down really problematic paths. And so I think we need to really think about, you know, what is the whole system we're designing for? Who are all the participants? What are the secondary effects? And understanding that we can't necessarily deterministically design for all of that, but that we can start to, uh, we can only influence that which we clearly see. So we can start to see more clearly where we're, what the, spaces that we're playing in and start to make a lot of those implicit choices more explicitly. Such an interesting perspective. How do you even take action on some of these changes that are, that are, how do you support some of these changes that are occurring, but also like change, cult this is a cultural change. Like how do, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you see that moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a really good question. And I think I think there are a number of different ways that we do that. I think that if you look at something like user-centered design, which started as kind of a nascent set of ideas and then evolved into, you know, this whole industry full of techniques and methodologies and um, a lot of people who have oh, long Twitter arguments a about lot of books. those methodologies. <laughs> <laughs> On design Twitter. <laughs> I think that, you know, we can start to think about what, like I'm super interested in thinking about what some, some new techniques or methodologies might be that we can introduce. But I also think that's only like one small yeah. bit. I think you're right that it's a culture change. And I think that also it's not just, it's not just up to designers. Like I think that, um, designers bear often a lot of responsibility for being like in the past we've talked about being the voice of the user and I think I'm not sure what the new phrase is whether it's like the voice of society or the voice of community but there's something mm. there that is um, that designers have often been uh, seen their role as being representatives of what's good for 
what's for the greater good. Um, but that only works if you have everyone on board with these kind of culture changes or that you have people who are influential in organizations starting to say these things. Facts. Uh, because That's a fact. <laughs> Truth. You, you don't, you know, you can't do these things um, unilaterally and you can't push it from one, one discipline. Uh, and the fact is like, you know, the, the, the macro is micro that we talk about everything being mm -hmm. interdependent and interconnected. That's true in terms of the work that we do and the disciplines that we, uh, that we engage in and how we collaborate and that, um, we can't talk about designing for interconnected and interdependent systems if we're not acting that way ourselves. Right. Facts. Facts. More so, Alexis. Uh, so Facts. Tell, so what is this? You talk about steep. Can you tell, can you please enlighten me? What is steep? So how does this work and how can we use it? Steep was um, a, a method that was introduced to me by Scott Smith, um, who does a lot of forecasting work. Um, in, the, in my Medium post, I linked to his post about, uh, that talks a little bit more in depth about steep and um, other kinds of, uh, future mapping tools and how we might use those in the current moment. Uh, it's a really good piece. And basically STEEP is an acronym for uh, social, technical, economic, environmental, and political. And mm. so when you, when you think about, you know, how do, how do I understand what the impact of a particular change might be um, writ large, like when we talk about what are these second order impacts, what are the unintended consequences, and if you think about uh, that change or that thing that you're trying to play out in the center of a circle, and then you um, sort of play out the first order impacts and then the second order impacts from there, and then maybe how some of those connect with one another, but that steep is a way you can think about what are the different, um, what are the different kinds of areas that might be impacted or influenced by what you're talking about. So if you're talking about, um, you know, coronavirus, for example, um, that you can talk about what are, what are some of the, the first order social effects, what are some of the technological effects, what are some of the, the economic effects, what are the environmental mm. effects, what are the political effects, and then you start to play out sort of holistically what is the whole system at play, and then you can sort of go one order out from there and start to understand how those things start to speak to each other as well. And then and you just so, like go into a corner and cry. Yes, no, of course. Okay. <laughs> That's <spring>. Definitely. <laughs> definitely options. Some drinking involved. <laughs> <laughs> you can't unsee that. I can't unsee what I just see. <laughs> But seriously, that is the, like, that's the work. That's the work right there. That's the yeah. business. And it's, you know, we can't, we can't do this comprehensively for every single thing, but it's just, and it's just one tool. There are many other tools, but I think that some of the tools that are used in things like um, kind of futures work and forecasting are useful in terms of better, and, and just kind of systems thinking as a whole, there are a lot of techniques that we can maybe start to apply mm -hmm. for design processes to better understand how to design for systems. Oh my goodness, preach. Uh, we talk about that, we talk about that a lot. And J Jackie and I, uh, 
apply a lot of that thinking, as you know, as we've worked together, Alexis, to the work that we do, and that you know, design ops can be thought of as you know this very specific function where you could that you can unlock for you know like program and project management, or you could use it to help you unlock much more systemic scale of this type of bigger thinking work across organizations, but. Yes. The table That's, really has to be set for it, you know. Like, it's, yes. Who's think? Who are? Is there anyone around you that you feel like is is thinking like this? Because I don't feel that yet. But I imagine this will become maybe another. Hopefully, it will become another point of conversation that will last longer than some other, you know, trendy topic. Yeah, and I mean, I, I definitely think that there's starting to be. I think that you see it in some of the conversations around design ethics, which are framed or not always framed in a super broad or a super nuanced way, but I think are starting to get at some of those things. And then there are some people who have been, you know, really talking pretty robustly about like, how do we best engage as designers in society, looking at like Erica Hall and Mike Montero. Um, mm -hmm. I cited Kevin Slavin's piece. I think that he does a great job of thinking through some of that idea of like designers participation, designing for systems. Um, mm -hmm. You know, John's obviously thinking about this as well. I, I definitely think that there's some good minds who are um, engaging, starting to engage in these conversations. They're all using different, we're all using different words to talk about it, but we're all talking about the same thing. We're yeah. all talking about like, what is our social and ethical responsibility as designers? And how do we build practices that can help to um, help to institutionalize that, help to make it not just a talking point, but something that we can actually put into practice on the ground? And so um, as we're all in this place, and in this moment, and we will be for a while. Uh, and when we come out of it, hopefully, like I said, things, you know, things are going to have to change. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are, you know, you talked about this a little bit, like what we could do, what is our responsibility to move this forward? What is some, you know, like, uh, some type of manifesto that we really need to bring to the next place because we just can't go back. Like to Jackie's point, I can't unsee it. We all can't unsee it. Yeah. When you say we, do you mean we as society, we as designers? Oh, we as society, I think. But I guess, you know, if we want to just boil it down to make it more palatable for our audience at the moment. I mean, we as society, who knows? I mean, it's, there's all a big question mark. I feel like there are these moments of sort of collective trauma cause radically different kinds of reactions writ large. I mean, we see, um, I think there are various historical examples where people have responded with increased like collectivism, like New Deal kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and then you see, exactly the opposite reaction in other in other situations and i think it's all still really unknown it's really kind of depressing and also fascinating to me how this moment is is still being politic politicized and politically polarized in a way that is right. absurd in this moment yeah um 
So I have no idea. Like, I don't know. I don't know where we're going to end up from this. So then as as designers. Any any uh, prognostication. (laughs) (laughs) But you, us, as design leaders then, as business leaders. (laughs) Like, take it down. Take it down. Bring it down. Bring it down. (laughs) (laughs) Little snack-sized pieces. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think... I think that it's less about manifestos and more about nuanced conversations. I think Mm. the nuance part is the part that, you know, when Matt and I talk about these things and what we're trying to do in our newsletter and as we, as we think through the conversations we want to engender, it's really about how do we stop having these really black and white conversations that don't get us anywhere that sort of posit some people as being on the side of doing good things and you know other people companies um being on the side of just exploiting everyone because that's not that's not the case and that's not how these choices are being made and so it's like right understanding the ins and outs of like how do these kinds of decisions get made how do we make better ones how do we create tools or frameworks that help us make better ones or help us have better conversations in, you know, not just in society, but in our organizations and our everyday work. Um, and it's almost like it's a more interesting conversation. It's a less dramatic one. Um, but I think it's one that like moves us more towards what can we actually do? How do we actually build things differently? How do we put different processes in place? Yeah, and I think it's going to be incredibly important to have people like you, like yourself, and people who are really willing to think about this and talk about this you know, in the spaces where we are, you know, provoking, continually provoking that conversation. Because my fear is, you know, once we get back to some sort of new normal, um, there will be a bit of business as usual. But I do feel like the responsibility really is going to be on the people who are just gonna need to push, push and continue to push and think yeah. to your point, think about things differently and push and provoke people to think differently. I think not just provoking, but evolving. You know, I think that's really, it's a little bit of both. And I'm sure depending on how you experience, how, how you're on the receiving end of that, it could feel provoking or it could feel um, like- You have to provoke evolution. to evolve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a little, it's a little bit of both. I think this is, perfectly full circle to the way Alexis started us off, which is not planned, but it's a little bit of both. It is both, you know, Mm -hmm. not, it's not, the future is not solved. And, um, that's, I don't know, for me, like I said, it's like a breath. It gives me pause, but also like a deep breath of accepting that. And that's really exciting. And good Lord, I think, Whatever Alexis is doing is some good thinking, some good work, right, Allison? <laughs> She's doing the good work. She is doing the good she work. Doing the good work, and and shout out to Matt Baji too, who is also by your side, doing oh, yeah. some of that good work too. Um, and thank you so much for chatting with us, and um, always inspiring me and many other people. Uh, and yeah, and just joining us as the first guest on this, you know, weird experiment that we're doing together. Right. 
I'm always up for a weird experiment. <laughs> I, know. I know you are. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's fun. Well, if you loved this episode and this conversation as much as Jackie and I did, you can check out The Future Mundane by Nick Foster, which Alexis recommended, as well as a Politico magazine piece that she and Matt Baji just put into their most recent Ethical Futures Lab newsletter titled Coronavirus Will Change the World Permanently. Here's how. And don't forget to sign up for their newsletter at ethicalfutureslab.com. Guess what? What? There's more in common. If you want more from me, Allison Rand. And me, Jackie Fry. Go to incommon.design. Alrighty, that's our show. Ciao. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.